Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Two Cyber Chicks podcast. You're about to join Erica and Jax for an inclusive cybersecurity conversation designed to educate and break the stereotypes of cybersecurity professionals while providing life hacks on how to handle burnout, networking, and goal setting. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. about our guest today. I'm over here kind of warming up my hands because he's a dear friend of mine. He's an amazing background. He is a world-renowned hacker, a podcast host, an influencer, and a mentor in the cybersecurity space. We are thrilled to have Mike Jones on the show to share his story with everyone. Mike, this is such a long-awaited interview. I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm awesome. And thank you for having me. Uh, You know, we always have great conversations. Glad to be here. Yes, I am so thrilled. So before we really dive into like the nuts and bolts, let's just I want to give you a few minutes to share your background of how you got into the cybersecurity space. Awesome. I'll give you the uh, Cliff Notes version then. I got in cybersecurity space. Uh, I had been tinkering with electronics and and computers since I was a kid. First uh, computer was a Commodore 64. Dad worked for the NSA. Later on, he became a VP of an electric company. So I had background in electronics, electrical theory, antenna theory, just all kinds of crazy stuff. So I started hacking and, and my mom got her first laptop and I ruined it for her. And that was the start of, of everything hacking. I went into the military, got some specialized training in signal intelligence, and that helped add to my portfolio of weapons in the dark arts. And I got in a little bit of trouble and, and uh, turned a corner, and now I'm helping uh, give back and, and mentor and keep kids from making dumb mistakes. Mike Jones! Okay, Mike, that is an awesome, awesome story background i'm so excited to dive into this deeper before i do though do you know that reference and do you ever get that reference unfortunately i I do know that reference the guy actually is from the same city in texas that i'm from houston unfortunately i don't post my phone number in songs so (laughs) he can have that 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 fame and fortune but i'll tell you what being an influencer being on the web people always make remarks about mike jones and they get us confused it's so good it's such a good reference i can't i can't like stop myself from doing it in my head it's amazing i love it i had to tell jacks all about it because me being from atlanta i mean i I know the reference very well jacks was like what are you talking about i swore she thought i was like going crazy i had no idea mike what she was talking about until she did it and then she kept doing it over and over again mike jones and now it is literally stuck in my head so we'll catch you what a name i mean i love it anyway so mike you are a former anonymous hacker. We've been through this. I know that this, you know, is a little bit of a touchy subject because I know that, you know, that came with, we talked about the dark arts. It came with a little bit of trouble. I'm curious, how did you start working with this group? Is this one of these, they'll find you type of arrangements? And why did you start working with this group? What was it that, that kind of like drew you in, if you wouldn't mind diving in there? 
So I got involved in the very early stages of Anonymous. There wasn't really a, I guess, a way for people to hook up that way back then. I knew Barrett Brown. Barrett Brown became a big influence within Anonymous. And up until about last year, I still communicated with him. And it wasn't so much as, hey, you know, we want to get together some hackers. It was more of, this is our ideology. This is what we're upset about. These are the things that we think needs to happen on a political level. It was more political than it was technology or hacking or any of that. I mean, when you look at the true form of the word hacktivist, it's mostly politically motivated. So my, my political stance changed once I left the military. I still have the same ideology. I still don't trust a lot of the government. And that's kind of what got me started with that. And the hacking just seemed to be kind of an add-on bonus, I guess. Yeah, I'm curious on, I really want to know kind of your thoughts on if you could go back and talk to your younger self, what advice would you give that younger self if they were in that same position to either, you know, go left, join anonymous or go right, not join anonymous? What would you do? I still would have made the same decision. I would have probably cut it off a lot earlier than I did. But when you get to a certain point and you feel like you've gone so far, Everything else just seems, I mean, like it doesn't really matter. Like you're already in so much trouble that there's no reason in stopping now. But if I wouldn't have gone that route, I wouldn't have learned the lessons that I learned, learned the things that I learned, seen behind the curtain, and I wouldn't be who I am today had I not had that life experience. I'd love to jump in, Mike, when we're talking about these like learning experiences, is there is there one particular learning experience that you would mind like just walking us through that you think was just one of those like, wow, I'm so glad that I went through this experience just to learn this? Sure. Um, I think the biggest thing that, that I learned and it still sticks with me today is working as a confidential informant. It has its own inherent risk. And I learned really quickly that the federal government and parts of the federal government do not have the capability to do some of the things that we have the capability of doing. And they, they collect people like me, people like Chris Roberts, people like that, that have that knowledge, recruit them to kind of voluntold you to do something that they don't have the capability of doing. And while it seems exciting, it put me on edge for quite a long time, looking over my shoulder and, and kind of like, you know, signing the OIAs, the otherwise illegal activity forms, always confused me because they wanted me to sign a piece of paperwork saying I was going to really commit the same crimes I was committing before, but with their protection. And it, it was just like, why, why is it okay now, but it wasn't okay then? So I learned to, to really step back and, and take things slow and look at situations for what they are and holistically, instead of just jumping in and going you know, all the way to the wall. When you talk about kind of taking a step back and looking at things holistically, you said it was from the experiences that you had. Did you do any like meditation or spiritual work during this? Because this was a tough time for you. This is, I mean, this in in ways, and we can talk about this if you want to, in ways in, you hit rock bottom and you've come up from it, even in a short period of time to where you are, where there are just times where you just really took a seat back and you're like, it's time to do some self-reflection on my life. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that played so much of a part when I was out doing what I was doing. But when I came back to the States, I, I really took uh, an inner look, went inside for a while. And meditation really helped a lot. Meditation, you know, essential oils. I got into making candles and some crazy stuff like that. But it was a way of like 
slowing everything down, you know, just taking a break and saying, Hey, okay, you know, I'm back in my home country. Let's just put things aside for a second and get recentered. And I, I think that people in our industry don't do that enough. I see people burn the candle at both ends and I still do. I'm still guilty of it. And so I have to put myself in check every once in a while and, and say no. And I think that's the hardest thing to do in this industry is saying no. Oh my gosh, you're always out there. Social media, all the work. I mean, everything that you've got going on, you've got like three jobs where you're working. Probably, I'm assuming they're consulting. Most of them are blacked out, but you're always going. But we have to be because of the adversaries and they're always going, which lends me into the next question. And you and I have, we touched on this right before you hit record on the interview that you did with me on your podcast. And now that you, since that, since that conversation and we've, we had that conversation, you kind of had time to mill on it. What are your thoughts about the global powers, say Russia, China, Iran, and the cybersecurity threats that we have in those in those nexuses? What are your thoughts around them starting to come together behind the scenes and starting to work together to have a joint effort to start targeting America, specifically targeting our critical infrastructures? Do you think, because we haven't seen that before in this space, but with your experience and with and what you do, do you think that's plausible? And do you think that has been happening for a while and we might start seeing it now in the near near term? A hundred percent. I mean, it's been going on for a very long time, actually. It's not something that, that's that's new. Publicly, it, it's a new thing. But APTs, take you know APT28, for example, didn't start off as a government group. They were a group of hackers that, you know, let, let's do a little history lesson real quick. So when USSR fell, scientists, computer scientists, nuclear uh, engineers, biologists all lost their jobs. They didn't have that machine going. So those people had to find work. They had to find money and people will do what they need to do to survive. And so a lot of those computer scientists ended up going to different nefarious groups. And those groups ended up being picked up by the Russian government and there was a cooperation. So we've seen that, that marrying between groups for a while. And when you look at just look at our history with, let's say, I don't know, Natanz, right? So Israel, U.S., Iran gets hit with with Stuxnet. No doubt that we work together. So we've been seeing that for, for quite a while. But on a very low level, I've seen and done some instant response where multiple actors have been involved. And and not to not to forget that those actors are not the only actors who do that. The U.S. is very active in cyber ops. We've been doing this since the beginning of computers. I mean, we have taken part in everything that they have been accused of doing. So it, it's it's across the board. It's a new type of war that I do believe that the next kinetic war is also going to be fought on a internet or cyber level. Oh yeah, we're the guerrilla warfare has gone away. The only way we're going to go back to guerrilla warfare, it would be probably very, very small, but particular geographic locations in the world that are not uh, cyber mature enough to fight in that space. But that's not where our wars are going to be fought. They're going to be fought with the global powers that we have, and it's going to be in the near term. And we talked about this. I mean, quantum computing is coming out at AW. Our Amazon right now is hiring for quantum computing AWS engineer. So it's that is in the next three to five years. China has a, a quantum computer that they're building. So our threatscape is about to just map, like completely change. So from your pro- professional opinion, 
what can we start doing now to start being more proactive in the space to start helping reduce the vulnerabilities that we have specifically in our federal system, our critical infrastructure, you know, uh, what, it, what are your thoughts around that? Because that's something that's big right now, especially with the supply chain attack. And then we had the colonial pipelines happen. And now we have, now we know we have cyber criminals teaming up against us to come at us. What are we going to do? Well, so Obama had the right idea during his administration and laying the, the mark in the sand saying, you know, if you attack our critical infrastructure, then we look at that as a sign of war. We're going to jump in and it's going to be kinetic. Uh, however, since then, it, it seems like that has kind of disappeared. I mean, we, we've had hospitals have been attacked. We've had, you know, someone died directly from a ransomware attack. And we see a lot more ransom ransomware attacks against the infrastructure. I mean, we didn't, we saw in Florida an attack against the water treatment. It wasn't ransomware, but still, I mean, that should be an active war. Also, we, we've seen Colonial Pipeline. But here's my problem with the, the whole federal outlook on ransomware and critical infrastructure is... We shouldn't only be worried about the critical infrastructure. What about the people who are losing their jobs over ransomware? What about the small, you know, mom and pop shops that get hit with ransomware and nobody cares and they have to pay out and they end up losing their business? To me, I think the government needs to take a more proactive stance on ransomware itself. Now, I talked to Mark Elliott, a former CIA agent, on one of the podcasts, and I truly think that we need to have a more offensive approach where if we get hit with ransomware anywhere in the U.S., then the U.S. government should take out that infrastructure. Forget about the Bitcoin wallets because they'll just find more. I think that they need to do offensive acts against that infrastructure. Awesome. Okay. So, Mike, I have a question about, and, you, and it's okay if there's no answer to this, but you know, I'm thinking from like a civilian perspective, someone who has not done this type of work before, like, is there anything that we can be doing on our end to help to contribute to this like greater cause? Because I mean, I hear you and I know that listeners hearing this, they're like, okay, yeah, this is like a huge fear of mine. I know that this is the world that we're living in, right? So what can we doing, if anything, to help with this cause? Everybody needs to use their voice, right? So a lot of companies are afraid to admit breach, afraid to admit failure. And I try to explain to them that, that some of my biggest failures have came into fruition to be my greatest success. And so as an industry and even outside the industry, if you hide those breaches, you're not helping anybody else. You're not making the environment better. You're making it worse because then everybody's sitting around going, oh, we only see like the critical infrastructure attacks. We don't see the small banks. We don't see the other parts of the infrastructure that's getting hit. If more people use their voice and make that stuff public and talk about what happened and make it available, then it makes us all better, you know, as a whole industry. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because it, it in turn makes it more of a, a shared learning experience uh, rather than, hey, let, let's put the cover over that mess and uh, let's pretend it didn't happen. So, I mean, I, I'm naturally thinking of, hey, well, this is going to continue to impact like the next generation and the next generation as much as it's impacting ours, right? So how do we also make sure that um, that next line of defense is, is getting ready? You know, are what are you seeing as far as the trends in the market for like, you know, new hackers coming out, right? Like more educated cybersecurity professionals, you know, I know that there's new content out there. There's a lot more educational content that when I first joined cybersecurity. So do you have any advice for for that like younger generation? 
I, I do. And, and also for the current generations that, that are bringing these people into the industry is let's not look at certification so strongly. You know, it, it to me, it only proves that someone can take a test. You know, if you hand me a book of material I've never seen before and I study that, you know, very hard for the next four or five days, I can go and pass that test. But that doesn't say that I know that entire topic. You know, we put too much weight on those entry level certifications. I think that we need to do more within the school system as well, teaching kids about cybersecurity, teaching about cyber awareness. And, you know, the big tech companies are not helping with, you know, let's say some of the social platforms that they use. They're breeding a lot of kids who just sit and stare at screens all day, but not in a proactive way. They're not learning anything. They're just burning time. And also the parents, you know, I understand there's a huge technology gap between the kids and the parents. I've been dealing with that for the past four years. Uh, and I encourage parents to get more involved with what their kids are doing, whether it be gaming, whether it be social media, take an interest, you know, and that'll help build a strong relationship as well as you'll learn something and then you, you can teach them something as well as far as being more dedicated to learning more technical things on the internet. But as an industry, I mean, we've been failing as an industry, bringing people in for the past couple of years, uh, looking at prerequisites and, and requirements for specific open level, you know, entry level jobs is horrible. You know, they want three years experience for entry level and five certifications. What college student do you know that can, you know, spend $10,000 on a boot camp to get a cert with no promise of a job? And, you know, I think we're really failing at that. Yeah. And I like how you touched on, we really need to educate it at a younger gener our younger generation. Something I share is we all know what to do if we get caught on fire. We all, because of school. Stop, Stop. Rock, roll. Like, what do we do? But how many times have we ever been caught on fire? None of us, at least on here. And it's a high percentage of people that have never been caught on fire, that have never just like combusted and had to stop, drop, and roll. But we know what to do if, if that happens. We need to start doing the same thing with cybersecurity. So kids know, and I know we use, if you see something, say something, but that's not specific enough for kids. They need to understand how, the, how do they identify if this is a phishing smishing on my text message? How, how do they identify if it's an email that's coming in or even social media, something that's, that's phishing them? They, they aren't getting educated. See something, say something that's so broad. Kids aren't going to know. Unlike if you are on fire, you stop, drop and roll. We need to start teaching kids the, the youngest age what to do, because this is just going to get more and more progressive and the adversaries are going to become more creative in their attacks. Uh, something I wanted to just, I wanted to take a couple of steps back really quick and then I'm going to pass the mic over to Erica, but I had to ask this question because it's something that's in the Senate right now, or it's at the federal level right now. And they were trying to pass a law in the most recent NDAA about it. And it was the major incidents and reporting a major cybersecurity incident within 72 hours it was actually 24, but congressional leaders were wanting 24 hours to report an incident to CISA or you received hefty fines. They were flexing to 72 hours and it didn't make it into the NDAA because there was just too much friction. But I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts. I know what my thoughts and Erica's thoughts are and a lot of the industry leaders, but 72 hours to report a major incident to CISA, it, it seems a little crazy to me. Yeah, that's very crazy. 72 hours is a very long time, especially, let's say, if you're part of that breach. I think that once a company identifies that they've been breached, it should be immediate. They should want to report it immediately. They shouldn't want to wait a week, two weeks, whatever. 
you know, when your house gets broken into, do you wait 72 hours to call the cops? You know, that's, that's too long, you know, but it is a right, it's a step in the right direction by mandating that type of reporting. But here's the key. And this goes with any compliance. When you put that restriction, there's always going to be those big companies that would rather pay the fines than disclose. And that's where we're going to fall apart. Such a good point. Okay. So this has been awesome. But Mike, the question that we've all been waiting for, you just moved into a haunted condo. You have two haunted pictures behind you. For our listeners that obviously aren't seeing the video right now, there are two haunted pictures that used to be owned by a witch that are right behind Mike Jones. Mike, have you had any spooky stories or haunting occurrences that you can share with our listeners? Oh, absolutely. I talked about some of them on my Halloween podcast. You know, at night, I'll hear people talking in the hallway. There's nobody there. That's happened a couple times and banging on the door and going to the door. And this hallway is not huge. I mean, literally, there's only six apartments on each floor. So when I go to the door and there's nobody there, that's kind of unnerving. But I got the new mascot for the uh, podcast. His name's Loki. And he's a Maine Coon kitten, black kitten. And uh, when I first brought him home at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, he starts following something around the apartment and swatting at it and then ducking and, and just kind of like paying attention to something that was my level, but wasn't there. Uh, so that's a little unnerving. But I've heard from other people in the building. Uh, there's several incidents that occurred here. There's a guy who died on the ninth floor construction accident. There's a, there's a little boy who haunts the second floor that's been here forever, I guess, since the renovation. This is over, this is a hundred year old building and all the buildings around me, as a matter of fact, all have ghost stories as well. Like the Tivoli Theater next door, there's a ghost in the Tivoli Theater. So the city's really interesting when it comes to uh, ghosts and hauntings. And I, I had the uh, founder of Chattanooga Ghost Tours on my podcast on Halloween night too. So. Got a little bit of uh, information about the city and stuff. Ooh, that is awesome. So, Mike, I'm obviously curious. You have a podcast named The Haunted Hacker. Does this have does this have anything to do with why you live in a haunted place, or is this just a random random coincidence? No, I. It's kind of, I, I guess, my personality. I guess I've always been kind of uh, drawn to the darker stuff, the macabre. And not, not in a negative way, but I just like to learn about stuff like Stalin, you know, and some of the some of the other world leaders that had that dark streak because they were so powerful. And I think just like you have to learn offense and defense and cybersecurity, in order to be a well-rounded person, you have to know about the bad and the good. You know, if I walked around only focused on good stories, then are they really that good? Yeah, good point, sir. Yeah, you have to have the yin and the yang in life. I was just reading a book the other day that was just talking about embracing the darkness, embracing the darker side. But we, at least in Western culture, we've really seen darkness and ghosts and things like that as just a negative, mm -hmm. uh, almost like as like a demon, but it's not that way. When you really start digging into the understanding of where like darkness and ghosts came from, it's, it's not intended to be bad. So I know me personally, I have to embrace it a little bit more. I would, I don't think I would want to be in a haunted place. I'll, I'll be honest, Mike. I'm like, oh, no sleepovers at Mike's house anytime soon. I'll challenge the listeners. If you don't believe in ghosts, 
my question is, have you read the Bible? Mm, yeah. So that's that's the way I look at things, and uh, yeah. you know, it just you know, goes to me or just another step in in our our road in mm-hmm. life. I think. Yeah, and you guys get to hear the honking out here because I'm in New York. Woo! All right, so we're wrapping it up, Mike. But before we hop off, how can the listeners be able to contact you or listen to your podcast? They can go to my website, which is thehauntedhacker.com, and all the information is there. The Discord link, which I have to update, and uh, links to all the shows on YouTube. And you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, all that stuff. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Mike, for coming on the show. This has been amazing. It's, it's been awesome being on here. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Two Cyber Chicks Podcast with Erica and Jax. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.